0: You are listening to a podcast produced by the Center for West European Studies and the John Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash EU West Europe. Okay, I think we're going to um, break up our delicious lunch and talk a little bit about some more upbeat issues than in the first part of the day. So um, uh, many people grow up never taking a Scandinavian Studies course, um, and that's a shame. Um, You might be able to get one in Ballard somewhere, but it's still rather (laughs) difficult. And so you only start learning about Scandinavia when you get to college. And typically, most colleges in the United States have one unit called Sweden, and then they go to Russia and Japan. But I'm the only one in the United States that can teach all five um, of the Nordic countries, and I can teach them the entire 10 weeks. So I'm a very, very privileged person. So um, I wanna share with you what I've been learning and some of the things that I think could be hopeful in your learning as well. So in my teaching at the University of Washington, I focus on the history of European integration, so why some of the Scandinavians said which means no thanks, and some say ya, ja, so Yes, according um, to. And I try and explain in the, this my first book, The Nordic States and the European Union, um, that Finland wanted to run as far away from Russian as they could, and they were the only ones to take the, you know, the 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 Euro, as well as they said they would drink more red wine and less vodka. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they pledged. Um, And then the Icelanders are the least likely to want to go into the European Union, because they have very uh, sustainable fisheries. They're very careful, and even though the the Royal Navy had to be brought in to to save back uh, the British, the Icelanders have said, we want to run our own show. Okay. And obviously, somebody from Norwegian background has to also point out that if you've got oil and gas, yes, you feel very Norwegian. You don't really want to feel more European. But that may change. we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, there are also peers of the Nordic states. And I would consider Switzerland a peer. Although, if you should tell me, oh, Professor Ingritson, I'm going to Switzerland, I'll say, no, I'm sorry, that's not part of my zone. But I do follow it. Um, and another, uh, I would say, like-minded state would be the Netherlands. Um, and while these places are seemingly remote and far away from us, learning from other parts of the world make the adoption of particular strategies promising for the greater whole. And here I'm talking about What can we learn from these small states that are roughly the size of uh, this state, Washington? uh, And how can we adapt them to better fit the needs of climate change and sustainability? And I just will remind you that it was the Swedes who were the first to invite the global community for an international conference on the environment in 1972. Sweden had the legitimacy to call such a meeting. Swedes have well-maintained common areas and hold a unique tradition or norm that enables anyone to camp or pass through their property as long as it is left the way it was found. This is called all As far as I know, nobody does this. Maybe somebody in Af- Africa or somebody far away, but this is unusual. So you can go anywhere you'd like in Sweden. As well as initiating subsequent global conferences, the outcome that was particularly important following the 1972 meeting was the call for all states to have a cabinet level position for the environment. Do we have that? Mumbling and grumbling, no. We have EPA, we have Ruckels House, right? But we don't have a cabinet position. The closest cabinet position is somebody that is basically divided in their um, orders. And Sally Jewell spoke to us, almost in therapy, coming back from the Obama administration, saying, look, I had to look out for fracking, and I also had to protect the wilderness areas. So that's an impossible role to have to balance. And I think she's glad to be back in the Seattle area. So um, as well as initiating these global conferences, the outcome that was particularly important following in 1972 was this idea of a cabinet level position. And all of the Nordics immediately set up a cabinet position solely for how to move things forward. In Germany, do you have one? What? Okay, I saw you. It's It's just lunch. (laughs) Um, There is a special cabinet position for the environment in Germany, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Okay. See. So this went through other uh, European states, but never really took hold in the US. And I think if we had a cabinet level uh, person who was just focused on issues of the environment and learning about smart cities, learning about best practices, we would be a stronger player in that area, but under this period, we'll have to wait. Think about our leaders, such as Sally Jewell, think about how conflicted she was, and that no environmental minister sits at the table in the U.S. cabinet. The idea was never adopted, and here lies a critical difference between the U.S. and many of the societies of the European Union. Green states are Scandinavian states. Along with my friends, the Swiss, sometimes the Germans, mostly the Germans. They took a lot of solar panels that we developed. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but who is speaking out about climate change? Governments of leading eco states have drafted a detailed plan for a specific goal. Iceland proclaims to eliminate fossil fuels in 20 years. Good for them 350,000 people. I think they might be able to do it. Um, they also have abundant geothermal power, so this is like, you know, it's, it's kind of when you're in the shower and there's a very strange scent, that's a geothermal stuff, nothing's wrong, it's fine. Um, but also, uh, they have uh, abundant waterfalls, just like the Norwegians, and plenty of clean energy such as hydrogen cell tele... Technology, and some of you uh, techie people can explain how that works. But the only thing that comes out of it is water, which we can manage. A young girl in Sweden has become an international voice by sitting in front of the parliament striking for climate change. She has inspired me. Okay, way here. I haven't met her, but I'd like to hear more about her. She's coming. That's the wrong city. She she should be here. Maybe she's coming here. If she comes here, it's like the Rolling Stones. You need to tell me, okay? Rolling Stones, that's this week, right? A young girl in Sweden has become this voice. She is an articulate and hard-hitting advocate for taking steps to prevent further deterioration of the health of the planet. She says, why should I even talk about climate change? We have changed the climate. Now we have to do something else. Okay. So as she put it, we've already found a way to engage the environment by doing nothing. And future generations will suffer. So in Sweden, the discourse is different about climate. The government allotted generous funds for scholars to develop sustainable strategies at an institute they call the Resilience Center. The Resilience Center, in other words, you screwed it up, so now, where are we gonna go? And I think that's a very positive frame coming out of a negative situation. Uh, across the border in Norway, there is a shy and humbling approach to climate and ecology, why? Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna pick on German again. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm uh, hum- Humble mumble, somewhere. let's raise a hand. Okay, yes. <laughs> Oil of oil. So the, the Norwegians will tell you we are the most sustainable, you know, of all of you know the Nordic states. And then somebody says, don't you have oil and gas? Well what makes it sustainable was a decision by a guy that I met in a coffee shop who explained to me what he planned to do. Hans Henrik Rom uh, came up with the idea of the petroleum uh, fund which would which would shave off a certain amount of revenue so that you wouldn't overheat the uh, uh, economy, and so that you would also have a very you know healthy economy. Okay. So in many ways, I think that uh, you know the things that we treasure um, come from ideas that are European or ideas that um, come out of the Transcendental Middle Movement, and things that uh, we know from the past. So Gro Harlem Brundtland, who's been a strong proponent of using natural resources with an eye towards future generation, and in fact, in the United Nations, which happens to be Dog Commercial Plaza, but that's my other class, um, Gro Harlem Brundtland has her name on the Environmental uh, Commission within the UN she and her colleagues came up with the definite um, idea of how to think about sustainability, that it's an intergenerational thing, that you can't take more than you should, and you need to leave more natural resources for others. So in recent years, there's been a rise of the Ecology Party in Norway. It's a small party, but it has a loud voice. And it says, why are we the leaders in sustainability if we take so much oil and gas from the North Sea? That's wrong. That means that we're a hypocrite. So what my friend uh, who just arrived from Trondheim told me, they're thinking about mining things on the ocean floor and taking less oil and gas. Uh, from the crevasses that lie there. So they're trying to kind of put together two sides of a different coin. So let's try a little bit of technology, Okay. Okay. everybody gets this wrong. Sustainability. Um, People say, like every day they say, that's not sustainable. Well, they're not really using the proper verbiage okay when you're talking about sustainability you're talking about thinking about future generations and how you're going to preserve this planet so that others can enjoy it as we have Um, and it means also making some regulations some changes um, to resist this sort of live for now kind of idea and I think in Vermont and in this part of the country, perhaps in Oregon, um, there's already been a great deal of thinking about sustainability. And that's, that's a positive sign. Okay, let's go. So sustainability in Scandinavia, well, first of all, you know, you can make money in sustainability. You can not only do these, this is a, a number of windmills from the Vestas Windmill Company. Um, they also have an office down in Portland and you might see if you could get one of the Portland reps to come to your class or send some interns down there if they allow you to do that and Vestas was a very um, I think uh, inspiring thing for uh, Gregoire so do you know that um, Iron Mountain Park that is uh, on the way to Spokane and you see all those windmills those are they're either Vestas windmills or some of the windmills were purchased by Siemens. So. Okay, it says that Vestas we believe energy to be important for a catalyst for founding a better quality of life. It also helps the individuals that are close to these windmills because they earn a percentage or at least a kickback from the extra energy that is made. And so you're less likely to get the NIMBY effect, right? I mean, near the JFK uh, residents, uh, they asked them in Hyannisport, you know, would you like to have a few windmills, you know, because you're just that kind of soft Democrat. They'd want to do that. They said, absolutely not. So you have to put them in places where they're not going to be obstructive to, you know, nat- natural sites. Okay, keep going. We have Iceland, the power of geothermal energy, hydroelectricity and hydrogen fuel cell technology. There was a professor here in chemistry that was working on this. He was Icelandic. And he went back to Iceland. And you can see when you go into Reykjavik, um, halfway between uh, Keflavik airport and the downtown Reykjavik, you can see a fueling station. And that is that it's dealing with the hydro um, electric buses. Also, geothermal energy is uh, is very robust. Um, I always tell people, don't go into the shovel uh, business with Iceland. They have a lot of snow, some snow, more rain than snow. But um, they put their pipes of geothermal warm water um, underneath the the pl- places you would walk the sidewalk, so you don't have to ever really have to worry about shoveling. So if you're thinking about like introducing a new shovel and you want to go to Iceland, talk talk to me. <laughs> okay. What else do we know about geothermal energy? Well, they were going to redo Husky Stadium a few years ago, and it's now had its re, you know its whole redone um, structure. But a group of Icelanders, there were like six of them, all in suits. And Icelanders in suits, that means business, okay? And they went to the president's office and they said, we can save you a lot of money because there's geothermal energy under where the Husky uh, Stadium is. And everybody's like, oh, that sounds a little weird. We don't know. We don't know. We already have a firm, you know? Um, So they, they were not sure if that was the right thing to do. so. But we could have saved some money, but don't talk to Anamari about it because she's a little sensitive right now in those issues. Okay, next. Okay, and then who has the most hydroelectric power in the North? Clean energy. Well, it's Norway and Iceland are the leaders in hydroelectric power. The Swedes are kind of weeping that they let go of Norway because Norway had not only a clean source of energy, but a not so clean source of energy. Um, so 1905 was kind of was when they just wept. So, so All right, what else? OK, so this is, again, this, uh, this hydrogen fuel cell. So this Braggy Arneson um, was the one that was here. Professor Arneson was here at the UW. He went back to be a professor of chemistry at the University of Iceland. And he proposed that Iceland could be a hydrogen society free of fossil fuels by 2030, 2040. Okay? And here's what I love about the Europeans. They always have a target year. And it's like it's pretty way out. So. But it doesn't always, it, we have to push it out some, a little farther. But they'll say, well, in 2030, this is going to happen. Or in 2040, you know, we will never have a single plastic bottle in our society, right? Um, so there's a very sort of finite point where you're working towards. I know it sounds Soviet, but it really isn't Soviet. It's more like a, a positive idea that we can get there at this time. Okay, the, these are my people, the Norwegians. some people in there, but, but that's where they used to be, and it looks kind of like that, so they had to leave. Um, but if you want to understand more of these kinds of issues, I highly recommend that you go to the National Nordic U- Museum on Market Street because they are doing innovation discussions. They're doing, um, you know, crafts. They're doing, you know, all kinds of important things, Viking, Viking relics and all that kind of thing. Um, and I was early on on that board and had t- uh, the, the fortunate to, uh, Uh, opportunity to see how uh, that particular um, museum came about. Okay, Okay, and here's the um, the upstart party that is actually I think good for Norway's reputation because they're saying we're not going to take as much oil and gas than we did in the past and we want to understand that this Green Party um, is um, also connected with the European Green Party, which is a good nexus to understanding, you know, common best practices. Okay, so there are people who believe that that it's appropriate to do um, some of the, uh, you know, uh, drilling in the ocean floor of the Arctic. It turns out that Norway is the only one that can build um, the kind of extractive material um, needed to take that uh, from the Arctic floor. You may have seen earlier that the United States had a, something waving there in the Arctic and it didn't work out. Norway can do it, but it, they're not sure if they want to do it. And this is also affected by the Green Party. Aha! Okay, so, you know, my people are a little bit like sheep. I'll tell you why. Um, because the government says, look, we've got this thing called the Tesla, we've made a deal with them, um, and we're going to give you guys an incentive if you, if you uh, buy one of these Teslas. It'll be cheaper, um, there'll be some tax incentives, there will also be uh, the ability to park anywhere, you can get on ferries for free, and it, it just gets sweeter. You know. So when you go now to <coughs> Oslo, you just see like a stream of the same car. And you know, And when the Norwegians decide to go to the mountains, they go on exactly the same time, exactly the same day, and it, it's, it's, a, it's basically a traffic jam of Teslas. Uh, let me interrupt you right there. So, ain't not a single person in the whole country been raising a question on that matter. In other words, is this sweetheart deal only for the Tesla or for all electric vehicles? Right now, it's um, it's for Tesla. They do like the Prius, but they've, they they had they made a deal with the Tesla company that I guess must have been a sweeter deal. It's but, a very but, trusting society. <laughs> um, this is correct. <laughs> this is very correct. And I can I have a whole like several is about that. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so the Tesla's working out nuclear power in Sweden. Now, nuclear power, you know, is is has a mixed result. Okay. And my mom worked for um, the uh, nuclear regulatory commission, so she shared with me when I was in uh, college some of the material they had. <clears throat> and what she told me was, you know. These are wonderful and very efficient, you know, reactors. As long as you know everything isn't, you know, uh, if there's any problems, but they only last about thirty years, and then you have to decommission them, which is a very problematic thing. So Sweden has, you know, a very safe, uh, you know, uh, a very safe set of. Um, nuclear reactors um, and there was a question in time <clears throat> about whether they should go nuclear. And there's a woman on this campus that is actually an expert on this named Beth Keer. She and I studied at Columbia and at Cornell. And her uh, focus was, why did the Swedes resist this? I mean, wouldn't you want to have this? And it was an interesting story of kind of competition between different um, aspects of the fighting forces some people wanted it some people didn't um, and there was a concern that it might attract you know problems it's sort of the Robert Jervis problem you know that you know if, if I'm if I'm arming myself then that's making you arm myself you arm me and then it sort of escalates what they did is they took the knowledge and they Buried it in the size of uh, like a little tube, and they put it into the rocks somewhere near north of Stockholm, and only like a few people know where it is. So, so they they decided to walk away from that, um, and they are very careful in their decommissioning. This is where I went. Sorry. Um, are they building more up-to-the-minute nuclear power plants? You know the that- um, are not the awful dirty, you know, worrisome kind that we used to have. No, I understand there's some kind of new version that's much cleaner. Are they building those kinds? They would want to be doing that kind. What I know is that they are able to borrow some extra electricity power from Norway, from um, putting a new grid together. But if, if and when they do build. It will be the safest because that is the way they do business. Yeah. Okay. So um, I was invited here, and if you are invited here, you need to go here. Okay. The Resilience Center in Stockholm, Sweden, is the premier place to think about questions that this little Swedish young girl is is asking. Is like, what do we do now? What's our next step? What's the most prominent thing that is our prominent? Is it, is it the plastic on the beaches? Is it um, the, uh, you know, the kinds of chemicals that we have in our food? You know, what is doing the harm, and how do we take care of it? Okay. So and they, the Swedes have a lot of research money. So they can take you out to dinner. They can have an extra day of conferencing. They so so don't turn down this, app, this uh, invitation. Okay. Okay, Finland. The legacy of Nokia and, temb- and timber and excellent transportation. Okay. So Nokia um, was actually a, fin- a Finnish um, timber company. And. It turns out that the timber in other places were less expensive, so Finland said, "Okay, we can't we can't stay in timber, or we're going to be, you know, poor like our ancestors." So they had developed this handheld device that said, I, "I can't say timber in Finnish. I don't know my Finnish very well, but they would they would yell timber, you know, in Finnish." So and then they realized whoa, 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 we have a thing here. Okay, we should take this and study this. So they sent, I think it was two or three of the top uh, executives to Silicon Valley to just, just, to, you know, enjoy that kind of tech universe and get help on how to take this handheld device and turn it into what, what ended up being uh, in a the James Bond film, one of the early ones. Does anybody remember that? Mm-hmm. They pulled, pulled out this little phone right front, You know, I mean, it was before cell phones, so it wasn't really bad for us, right? But anyway, um, so they had built up this empire. Now, right across the border was a place called Ericsson. Ericsson also had a very nice phone. And so the Ericsson people and the Nokia people got together. And they said, you know, Nokia is doing better in terms of cell phones, and they may want to do something with Microsoft, which they did. Um, but it turns out that Ericsson, its um, phones were not as popular, but the cable, or the um, what do they call them? The antenna, the antennas um, were what they were really popular at. So they decided to split the field and say, "Okay, Nokia go for phones, and Ericsson go for the, the the towers." That's what I'm going to say. Um, so I thought that was a fantastic, you know, sort of, you know, we both want to be in this thing, but we shouldn't be killing each other. So let's just, you know, like they did in like a year ago. Um, so. They had put this in a a trial effort um, prior to the current CEO to have Nokia and Microsoft make a partnership. And of course, um, we have a Finn here in residence, and Microsoft called and said, You know, Christine, do you have anybody that could teach our executives how to say, welcome to Microsoft in Finnish and I said I got that done so, so they send her over there and they did this Finnish welcome you know maybe they even brought a sauna you know on the plane I don't know how they did all that but, but anyway they created this um, tremendous um, and powerful sort of idea but now we've sort of all got Apple phones or some other kind of you know competing legacy so Finland um, has an uh, an idea about how its trees should be taken care of. You can't really see in this image, but um, on our website, our Finnish uh, chair has put nothing but birch trees. And that's the, the sort of the famous thing that has kept. Um, that country alive and in the 1800s the Finnish decide they did not want to have too many trees taken down otherwise they wouldn't be there for other generations so so the pressure on these societies has been if we take it all now we aren't going to be able to live here so sustainability is not just a you know a buzzword or a a fancy thing that we talk about in college classes, but is actually a survival, a kind of survival. Okay, So we're Let's talking about it. the cell phone and finished transportation. All of these societies have fabulous uh, transportation uh, places. The, the one that I like the most is, da- is Denmark. How many of you have been to Denmark? Okay, have you taken those red trains that go into the center of the city? What did you note about them? Clean and efficient. Yes, clean and efficient, good, absolutely. And also, on the side of a car, it would say dog, a picture of a dog, and then the next one, dog slash, and then it would be be a a smoking car, right? It's kind of smoke, right? That goes by, and then no snooping. So it, it really kind of you know, channeled you where you <laughs> should be, and you got there um, rather nicely. So um, And there is an abundance of bicycles, and our own mayor, Greg Nichols, wanted to emulate that. Uh, we have gone partway, but you have to have more people out there to make it actually you know, a doable enterprise. Denmark's a little flatter yeah Yeah. so it is a lot flatter in fact that's the only nordic that i want to go biking in for that matter but um but yeah so but we have taken some ideas sometimes it doesn't always hold okay so closing thoughts each of the five countries in northern europe have set a deadline for changing so each of them have a target year It's 230, 240, 260, but they're going to make some changes and you're going to be seeing what they do, okay? And hopefully we'll be also implementing some of those changes ourselves. The way people work and live are dates that focus the population on a different way to act. Um, And given the fact that the welfare state reaches deep into the society and has been a successful relationship between taxpayer and policy recipient, sustainability has an easier promise given the well-established virtual rela- relationship between government and citizen. This is my big you know, sort of theoretical approach, um, which is that the reason that the Scandinavians you know, accept all these Teslas, or they accept you know, this involvement in the state and saying, we're all doing this now, has to do with the success of welfare. And, and I'm not talking about somebody just, you know, that's, um, you know, is somewhere under a trip under here. That's not what welfare I'm talking about. I'm talking the welfare that's cradle to grave, that every, you know, part of your life is affected by the state in a positive way, and things work. Uh, and so sustainability has now become the kind of the next level beyond building the welfare state to create a better um, example for the rest of all of us of how we can live and work. So uh, my friends in Scandinavia would not be happy with this kind of presentation, because I'm bragging. Bragging about five amazing states. And they would be very shy. They might tell you something all but I think that you should know that this is a fascinating place to travel if you can take students there it's a it's a fantastic place um, to discover you know how to live a little differently you get off at four you have four weeks vacation you know they're not actually failing when you look at GDP per capita they're actually at the top and you look at happiness they're at the top and you look at EPI, and they're at the top. I'm bragging again. <laughs> Time to stop. OK, thank you so much. I have a yeah, but sure. I know that now there is also a surge in, it seems largely related to issues around ethnicity and refugees, but there's starting to be a surge of populist nationalistic parties in some of the Scandinavian countries. And uh, one, one question I have is, do you think that would affect the climate sustainability forward movement? Because often those parties seem to include an aspect of climate skepticism. Okay, excellent question. Um, we have a colleague in political science named Charles Parker. And I think some of you may have had the chance to engage with him, and it's, it's always exciting. I like Charles a lot, and he's been put on The board of the American Political Science Association should select all of the best political science proposals in the United States. So he's he's a player. What he talks about is reactionary policy. He doesn't talk about populism so much. He says reactionary policy is when you've got something that happens in a certain prescribed moment, and then there's a quick sort of response. Um, and we saw that with the Syrians coming up, you know, and we were told, how many would you take? Uh, Norway says, just keep going to Sweden. Denmark says, go Sweden. Um, but in, in reality, they're, we're, they're going through a really difficult time because of what I call social norms. So their social norms are to be egalitarian. They're to be fair. They're to be gender neutral. But they're not the kind of uh, societies that know how to do that. When you, they've got you know Sven, Ola, Christina, you know this kind of thing, those it, that's a pretty egalitarian mix. But when you've got Syrians, they do not want to have those Syrians being idle, and so they give them free um, language instruction, and they basically require that so they can learn the language. They find out what they were doing in the homeland to see where they could match in terms of put them, putting them into place. And I think it's going to take time, but I think you know everybody's a little bit afraid of being overwhelmed when you're any kind of welfare state, right? I mean, we have a very minimal welfare state, and we have problems with that. That's another course but um, but with the high level of you know giving that comes from you know these societies um, it can also have a, a swing back in the sense that the people that live there are worried about losing their own benefits or somehow reducing what they have enjoyed over the years so it's a it's a process it's a it's a, a way to know sort of how do you how do you do this my friend uh, in in Norway told me he said that he volunteered to be a mentor because they were looking in Trondheim for mentors so a mentor would be like you know you just arrived from Syria so we have you over to dinner and then we find out that you actually speak French and then we get you to the language school and get you working with there as an intern so it takes some time but there are a enough- number A number of people who are committed to, you know, internationalism and development uh, economics, and this is where development economics comes home. I mean, it's one thing when you write checks for other societies, right? And it's different when they are right next door or, you know, somehow part of that process. And so I think all of Europe is saying, "We've had enough." Um, and Brexit is all about having enough, right? So um, I hope Scandinavia can do better, but right now in some of my writings, I've been saying, you know, look, if you don't get this right, it could ruin your reputation. Is, is it mostly economic? You make it sound like it's an economic question. Like You don't want these people sitting around on the street uh, because they're getting so much. Is it about money or is it about culture? Or is it that the it's people in the navy want to maintain their unique and distinctive Northern European culture, and they're afraid of these people coming in and diluting I think, the latter part of your question is where mm-hmm. I would go: the cultural norms, um, the the way in which the 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 whole um, you know operation of the society is 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 upset when people come in and they do things that are not expected. Right. right? Okay. okay. And and I've got a, a, some good news. Okay. Uh, some gals from, uh, from Minnehaha, we call it Minnesota. Um, Minnesota has decided in their language group that they're going to write new textbooks, and in the textbooks are going to be social norms. So, for example, chapter one, which means you must be absolutely quiet on the bus. Okay, so that's so, and I, when I first got on the bus, I talked all the time but I got the look you know you know the look right um, and what about you know what about jaywalking I came I just came here and I jaywalked and this woman looked at me she had her little son and she, I could feel the cold all the way down <laughs> okay you talk about the Seattle chill you say it's gone okay I'll talk to you about that anyway so but this other thing about customs and norms I mean, you can build that into language training so that it's less, you know, like, for example, you have to arrive at 7.01 for a 7 o'clock dinner. And so all of the guests, you know, arrive. And they can either have flowers, some kind of liquor, or um, a present from their home country. But if they were to arrive at 7.30, they may not be welcome. and They certainly would feel like they had not, you know, been treated properly. But how would you know that? Right? So my mother was in um, Oslo with me. And uh, this woman fell down. So my mother just immediately reached you know, to her hand. And I said, Mom, Mom, stop, stop. You can't do that. She said, I said, why? Because it's embarrassing. Nobody wants to be seen having fallen. Please, we have to go on. She goes, she argued with me the whole way. She's on the ground. What's going on? Nobody's helping her. Because we don't want to embarrass her. So, do you see how far we have to go? Yeah. Yeah. But all of those rules make the functioning of the society and the trust and all of those things come together. It works. Okay, so I would welcome you to any of my classes. I mean, you've been a little quiet, but that's okay. <laughs> um, it is after lunch, um, but I'd love to talk to you if you want to anything more the Nordic Museum, or you just uh, want to go to Sweden because you think you can, give me a call, okay? So, thank, thank you. you very much.